Hello, thanks for joining us for this interview with James Hoffman on his experience of the rise of specialty coffee. I'm Jordan Buchanan and I will conduct this interview with Philip McGowan. During this interview, we're going to cover a few different themes of world history, inequality, uh, James's regional experiences, and Phil's going to then talk about three different themes which are uh, quality in coffee, digital channels for coffee knowledge, as well as consumerism. So James, thanks for coming along and agreeing to talk to us. Uh, could you introduce yourself? Sure. Thank you very much for, for having me first. Uh, secondly, in terms of introduction, I guess I have worked in coffee since 2003. I kind of fell into it like a lot of people do by mistake. I didn't really realize there was an industry to fall into. Um, and I kind of fell in love with it pretty quickly, having started working in coffee without drinking coffee. Um, I kind of rose through the kind of roles of education um, before kind of quitting my job as a kind of national training manager for an espresso machine company in 2007 with the intention of starting a coffee roasting company and cafe that year. I ended up winning the World Roaster Championship that year, which derailed things in, in the nicest way. And in 2008, we founded Square Mile Coffee Roasters. Since then, I mean, that business has continued to sort of grow and it, it sort of um, rode the boom in London's coffee wave, I guess is fair to say. Uh, beyond that, I, I do a number of other things in terms of I've started a, a number of different businesses, mostly within coffee. I now, I suppose I'm a YouTuber. It feels like a weird thing to say in your early 40s, but it is the truth. Um, I'm an author. I wrote a book called The World Last Coffee. Um, and uh, I do a little advisory work for businesses. I do a little consulting. I uh, don't have much free time. That's me. Cool. And uh, thank you for introducing yourself, James. My name's Philip, and I'll also be asking questions today. And we really want to ask and focus in on that experience of your experience of the transition to what we today refer to as the specialty coffee industry. So you have worked in the trade for a long time, as you say, and in many different capacities. So could you tell us a little bit about your experience during the transition to what we call specialty coffee? I would say there are two distinct kind of phases that I experienced, which is, um, you know, globally, the specialty coffee boom had been coming really since the since the 2000s, early, early 2000s. And, and by 2003, 2004, certainly in the US, it's what we see as the third wave is fully underway. And I got to experience that from afar, like as a, as a passionate person. But in the UK, that had not yet happened. By the time we start Square Mile in 2008, it has the beginnings of that kind of boom uh, of, you know, specialty coffee within London specifically. And that was um, extremely interesting. Uh, you know, I, I think to go back to the beginning, as someone watching specialty happen from the outside, it just seemed to be this purely positive thing, right? It was suddenly this new message of coffee can taste better we can we can pay more money to producers that's better than fair trade or x certification everyone wins the consumer has a better experience you know the roaster roasts better coffee the producers get paid more and and this is how coffee becomes a good thing generally and and you know i think with the boom in london i think that got much more focused on the the kind of consumer side of things of like how do we encourage people to drink coffee what does it take for a, a population to adjust to a different style or way of drinking coffee what influences that 
And, you know, I, I think one of the things that nobody talks about enough in London's early days is that really that initial surge of cafes, uh, you know, of roasteries were almost entirely supported by expats or, or you know, Australians, Kiwis, uh, people from the US, you know, the, the local population, so to speak, were much slower to pick up on this. It was, they were kind of dragged by the scruff of their neck by friends who cared, who were often Antipodean or otherwise, uh, to places that were doing a better job and, and, you know, had to be led to water, so to speak. So we had that kind of initial boom, and then it kind of went much wider. And I think the reason it really gained traction is that it really seemed to freak out the big chains in the UK. You know, by what, 2009, 2010, Starbucks are putting a flat white on the menu. Costa mm. are putting a flat white on the menu. And it's extremely reactive. At this point, you know, they are monsters of commerce compared to the independent sector, you know, combined there are maybe 20 25 great cafes in london at this point 20 25 aspiring cafes that want to do that but that's really where it ends and you know hundreds of starbucks and costas and they freak out fascinating in a way mm. uh, but in doing so i think they kind of normalized a, a bunch of this stuff they normalized seeing latte art everywhere seeing the idea that that coffee can be a little bit premium it can be good it can be a, a nice part of the day that you're allowed mm. to expect a little bit better from your coffee that that was kind of you know weirdly i think um more effectively marketed by the chains than the independents but i think what was particularly interesting about london and why london i think was so successful is that it had quite a coherent community within the cafe side right that the small number of roasters and cafes spent time together you know we we back in the day spent a lot of time organizing events that they would get to hang out in and what was interesting is that it sort of changed the dynamic between the industry and the food media wherein this wasn't a sort of ragtag collection of fringe outliers whoever you spoke to whichever cafe and you spoke to you had a really coherent message really early on you know when there were 10 interesting cafes 12 you know um journalists at places like Time Out, as they were much more influential then were were paying attention because everyone was saying the same thing and there was a coherence to a community that made it feel like a movement rather than here's a bunch of fringe passionate people who are kind of funny and weird and here's the one place to go for good coffee or here's the one place to go mm. for the weird pour over thing or whatever else like it, it it sort of transformed the presentation of the movement through food media as well um and and very quickly though as a as a movement the, the community got too big to be coherent. Um, I think there's a lovely idea of Dunbar's number, which is the sort of the size of a functioning community. Um, that's a simplified version of that, but, um, and it began to fragment and in addition, stop innovating. I think there was this very simple idea of like, if we just do nice coffee, people will buy it. And that was sort of true, but not. And, and you ended up with a lot of cafes that looked very similar, same menus, same suppliers, same equipment, same feel, same attitude, all of that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. and, and I think it's coherence actually ended up being a temporary downfall. It, you know, I think it slowed it down because it stopped innovating and it became quite a homogenous culture, especially within London. Yeah, that's a great explanation. Thank you. Um, and that whole, that sort of period, the late 2000s, when you said that specialty coffee was becoming uh, normalized, was that the word? I think um, that's a reasonable yeah, word. Yeah. 
And I remembered you saying before that um, after you won the World Barista Championship and you returned to London, no one cared. So not a soul. Why, not a why soul. do you think of everyone was seeing it becoming normalized and this sort of innovative like community that captured people's like they thought it was great and it was quirky and fun? But why do you think no one cared in two thousand and seven? Was it just that the industry was so small? Or yeah, I think it was exposure. It was mm. if you're you know if your expectation of coffee is low and you know from its base to its best is in this very small segment of broadly terrible the idea that someone could win a competition for being good at it is a really abstract concept mm. you know what i mean if i'd had been the world's best sandwich maker everyone would have lost their minds because that's a very i get like if i had bad sandwiches if i had great sandwiches oh you know that's that's what i want i don't want the great sandwich but if your coffee experience has been you know generally lower quality commodity coffee instant coffee those kind of things the ceiling the upper end of your expectation is still very low for coffee and so it just seems like a you, you know there's a world porridge championships i'm not sure if you're aware of this most people aren't again that feels like a you know for most people they're like how good can porridge be right like i've had porridge i've had a lot of porridge in my life it's within a window you know how yeah. you know what is this is this a you know and, and as a result I don't think anyone takes that competition that seriously because their expectations are so, you know, um, low, broadly. Interesting. Maybe porridge is the next move, though. I, um, I mean, I'm ready. I'm ready. Traceable <laughs> oats, freshly, you know, freshly milled. I think it's a thing. Exciting. I can't wait to see the square mile bags filled with those. <laughs> um, yeah, I'll now hand you over. Thank you for those answers. I'll hand you over to Jordan for some questions on world history. Okay. I'm going to zoom out a little bit now from the you know London British experience and talk a little bit about world history or ask you about world history. Um, mm -hmm. So coffee is closely connected to uh, many different experiences across the world from Africa, Asia, uh, Latin America as the countries that are the places that produce it. But then we also have the people that consume it in Europe, Asia, Africa, Latin America, USA, North America. Uh, so it's a very global product um, and we often use it as a way to understand how global trade works. Um, I was wondering how has the history of coffee influenced your life and your work? This is a good question. And I think the answer is, is uh, I'll be truthful about it, which is I will, I will be disappointed in myself to start with. I read a book, quite, I, I'm a reader by default. And it, you know, when I find something I'm passionate about, my first action is to buy the books and start reading about it. And, and in a funny sort of way, coffee history was what made me interested in coffee. I read a book called Black, uh, no, The Devil's Cup, sorry. I read a book called The Devil's Cup by a guy called Stuart Lee Allen that is of questionable accuracy in places. It's very nice travel writing where he traces the journey of coffee from Ethiopia, you know, um, through, you know, around the Mediterranean, through into Europe. And, and he talks about how it kind of intertwined itself with various cultures. And I found that fascinating. That totally got me as a kind of, you know, how coffee in the last 400 years has woven itself into different cultures. So that got me interested. Then I read a book called Black Gold um, by a guy called Anthony Wilde. And I, I it's, it's probably, the, probably the best researched book for quite a long time that I'd read. It was detailed on the history of coffee, but he had come out of a company in the UK called Taylor's uh who and i think he was a strong advocate of fair trade and i read this at a time when his his views of like coffee is endemically unfair it's problematic seemed so contrary to the broad positivity of specialty at that time 
right? Like it was all like, no, 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 it's great. It's delicious. It's good. It's you know, ethical and it's better and all of this stuff. And I dismissed his work in a funny sort of way because it, it seemed to just be at odds with what I was experiencing of specialty coffee. And I'm like, okay, well, maybe that's coffee coffee, but not what I'm interested in or passionate about. By the time I came to sort of write the, the world atlas of coffee that involved going back into uh, every country's producing country's coffee history, the the pattern very clearly emerges. Uh, you know what I mean? Of like coffee is brought, cruelty comes with it, abuse comes with it, slavery comes with it. Uh, power systems are set up to be institutionally unfair, and we operate those today. And and that was every single coffee producing country with maybe the exception no that's not true i was gonna say hawaii but it's not as much that now but it certainly was historically um and that was a sort of you know i would say scales from the eyes kind of thing like oh i now understand a little bit more about why people are so angry because i've just been sorry for the noise i think i've just been drinking the the kool-aid so to speak of specialty of like everything is good everything is fine we are good people because we pay more money. And that that was very clearly shown to be a flawed idea to me. And uh, in the best possible way, kind of ruined coffee for me. Right? Because this is a realization that I've built a business or businesses that participate in this system, right? As much as we might pay X, Y, or Z or never pay less than however many dollars a pound, we're still participating in a system that is built as colonial wealth extraction to be unfair. It's, it's, it's designed very carefully to do this and we're all still participating. And so, yeah, I, I think for me, that's left me in this sort of frustrated, terrified, angry position of, I don't wish to participate. I'm aware I can't fix this problem i can be hopefully part of a solution but it's not something i get to fix uh, but it's something that we now think about and talk about a lot more and and it's a much bigger focus i think now than it had been in the past is that a long answer to a short question that's fine that's what we're looking for um <clears throat> so it's interesting you named some of the books there i was wondering uh if you if you're also aware of the new popular books of Augustine Sedgwick, Coffeeland, and Jonathan Morris's Global History of Coffee. I have both. I've only properly read Jonathan Morris's book. That's the smaller one, right? I think it's behind yeah. me on a shelf here. Um, Jonathan's book is is extremely dense. I think that was kind of the thing that stood out for me of like, that is, there's not a spare sentence of information in that. There is no, you know what I mean? Like it's a small book, but it is so densely filled with information. Um, the other book I, I I think I have, I haven't read yet. I struggle for reading time still. Uh, if I'm not sort of working on a specific project and I haven't, you know, uh, looked at this stuff since writing the book. Um, and so those are both newer than that. So I, I confess I'm only half informed. Okay. Well, we've got a podcast with uh, me and Phil interviewing Augustine Sedgwick on Coffeeland. Uh, so we'll send yeah. that on, save you some reading time. I look forward to it. I, I have no doubt that it's, I'm aware I need to read it. We, we all struggle with the, that there are far too many books to read and not enough time. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so as you're talking about this, this work, uh, I thought that's on, has academic research helped you in your practice? Uh, and how could we improve this connection between the academic world and 
the you know the the trade the trading world that's a an interesting question i could yeah i think um the temptation is to sort of switch by most of the industry anyway the temptation is to switch academic for academic community for scientific community which i think is uh wrong but that's i think you know how how most of the industry thinks this way is that that research is is science and that's broadly in the kind of um i don't know what the word i want here is math sort of biology chemistry physics kind of end of things rather than broader research in terms of i'm gonna get the words wrong but not humanities but like you know the, the wider construct be it history be it um sociological impacts that kind of stuff um i think um the the sort of harder science community has done a better job of engaging with coffee and and sort of taking a practical problem and and sort of trying to give us a quite a discreet answer to that and then they've marketed aggressively and there's no point pretending it's it's not that i think that's pretty fair and that's not a disservice to them i think that's a smart way to retain an industry's engagement and funding if you look at what the specialty coffee industry is investing in in terms of research you'll see there's a ton of it is agronomy a ton of it is is beverage science or, or kind of like coffee as a product a food product science and there's probably not as much investment in the the other pieces of that um so yeah like i i i'm interested when i find pieces of research but i find it's stuff that i have to work harder to come across rather than a lot more of the other stuff is brought my way by social media by the news anything else i think that's a reasonable you know that's one of the frustrations like i loved reading a paper where someone had gone and done research in guatemala and looked at the price paid to a producer and see how it was impacted by their ability to speak english as a second language right and not to do with your elevation or your variety or your soil climate can you speak english yes great you earn more money per pound that's it right like and the idea that the specialty coffee presents itself as an industry that is all about blind tasting and we find the best tasting lots and we pay for those and you're like well you don't we don't you know what i mean like we 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 tend to spend more money with producers that start with more capital right like that's it's it's a it's a classic you know continuation of um inequality in that regard Whereas if you are not educated in the US, if you can't afford a large farm, if you can't afford to run experiments and take risks with your product, then you won't. And the chances are you won't earn as much money as a result, even if your product is good, better, best. You, you, you know what I mean? Like th there are these other barriers to your success that are not fair, for want of a better word. Uh, yeah, I mean, I certainly come across that when I'm doing my research on on specialty coffee in Mexico. Is that it's a lot of the research is is focused on the hard sciences, um, so it's interesting to hear that it also influences the people that work in the trade. <coughs> uh, so, last question on like world history is how have the international and global changes affected your work, uh, such as financial crisis, uh, as well as like change in demand. And for clarity, are we talking like 2008 or are we talking 2000 or 2020 in that regard? Uh, you can share both if you want. Um, you know, what's, what stands out in your mind is some of the biggest changes uh, to the global coffee industry. I think 2008 wasn't that impactful on coffee. 
on the consumer side of things or on the kind of like con consuming countries for want of a better word i think um it was still relatively young i, I think you'd have seen a bunch of businesses start that were leaner at that point but in terms of global supply demand i i, I didn't really see that impact the way that we did with the pandemic this year where you had such an enormous switch for i'll say coffee roasters for the sake of argument here because it's the easiest to highlight obviously cafes were way more impacted but the sort of you know the the um flow of coffee to consumer changed for roasters first and foremost which is you know it, it suddenly instead of going through cafes and that being a large part of their business suddenly it was flowing direct to consumers and cafes use more coffee right so people drank less coffee cafes weren't making coffee um and so we saw this massive drop in demand for volume across all roasters and i think that that was everywhere especially in the initial months and you know i think the more developed uh, as a business a roastery is going to be the further out it's going to have product contracted the deeper its relationships are going to be the more complex that sort of becomes if you're a small startup roaster buying um you know product as and when on a sort of you know uh when you need it basis from a local importer didn't freak you out at all right because maybe you just didn't buy the pallet that month and you'll buy that pallet next month instead or you know whenever else but if you're a roaster that's buying by the container that you've got people and you know at that time of year in march you've got containers being prepped in much of central america you're about to receive or, or commit to coffee that you don't know how to sell because demands disappeared off a cliff uh what what do you do and that i think across the board was a huge test of relationships for a lot of uh roasters importers exporters because it was it was a i think a global drop in consumption of coffee sort of happened that way and yes it shifted around a little bit depending on you know when which country was going into lockdown or you know it's not been you know a universal lockdown by any stretch but i think just did see a lot of um push back sort of upstream from roasters being like i can't i i don't can we work something out can we can we do something about this is there a you know um and i suspect some went hard and just cancelled contracts and refused to pay bills because they couldn't because there was no incoming money and in other cases you know i think it was a question of careful negotiation where you see you know certainly for us it was a question of careful negotiation with people that we have in some cases decade-long relationships with that we don't want to lose you know what i mean like, and that's a, yeah that's you could argue there's a there's a harsh black and white business decision of like what's it going to cost me to accept this coffee financially and maybe not roast at all before it you know ages out and it's not worth it and i can't sell it versus scuppering this relationship by just saying no not buying it sorry cancelling cancelling our contract i'm done um and you know I don't know enough other people's situations. I know everyone struggled and everyone negotiated. And I think volumes came back quickly enough that it, it wasn't really a thing, but I think it was probably a terrifying couple of months for exporters in particular, when suddenly demand disappeared. Uh, yeah, thanks for sharing that uh, personal experience of, of what's been a, a very challenging year for many people. Um, so I'm going to, we've already spoken a little, little bit about it, which is <clears throat> inequality. So the next questions are, are based on that theme. Uh, so coffee has a long history connected to that uh, experience of in a global inequality. How do you engage with this idea in your work, the idea of inequality? 
I think, um, I think at this stage, having, having been late to realize how widespread and, and um, it's not really the right word, but I, I, I embarrassingly, I, I hadn't seen all that there was for a long time, right? Like I said, like I, I think I was a pure positivity person in what I was doing. I was passionate, excited about what I was doing. I didn't see the inequality as as clearly as I do now, and I'm still not sure I see it as clearly as it is. Like I, I think the more you investigate, the more you try and understand the relationships, the the more you see it. And I think, um, you, you know, the word the word ultimately is power. Right, like that's the that's the 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 word that I think about a lot, and and the the question that we come up against is how do you approach a relationship looking for equity in power, right? And and it's you need to identify where there is not equity in power, where there is an inequality in power, um, but then how do you realistically? work towards equity of power rather than equality of power. Like how do you, you know, hand more over in what you're doing? And that's really the dominant question that we are wrestling with at the moment. Um, do I have an answer for that? Not really yet. Um, but it is essentially, a, it's, a, it's as a black and white topic, like, okay, in every relationship, in every interaction that we have, how do we redress this balance? And the, the you know the, the question is do we operate and think about this kind of in a vacuum or do you accept you're working within a capitalist system, right? If you want to see change, I'll give it to to make that more concrete. Do I look to turn equity of power into a marketplace advantage, right? Am I likely to see widespread adoption of equitable relationships? If it is if it is commercially advantageous in in this current industry, the answer is probably yes. But it, that's then whether you're leaning into, you know, this is a financial system and saying, fine, I'll work within this, and it's or, or you're saying this is great and I wish to participate in capitalism, but I would like to also use it to to sort of transform relationships down the line by essentially um, pushing those that don't follow out of the market, right? Like that's the that's that. I don't know how I feel about that still. Like uh, that's the kind of the backwards and forwards on a personal level of, again, am I participating in a broken system? And am I trying to fix one broken system within the confines of another broken system? Or to to try and operate outside of both, is that just wildly impractical and unrealistic? And am I unlikely to make any meaningful change within the lifespan of the business? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. If, if you, you know, anyone feels like they have a very strong and clear answer to that question, I would love to hear it. But that's, again, it's what we wrestle with, right? Like, um, and I think the question is, you know, we, we, the goal would be to try not to lean into the worst of capitalism. Is, is that, you know what I mean? Like, uh, I think, um, but yes, it's, it's, it's become a topic of constant conversation because ultimately one company can't change everything. Right, like there's no way, there's no way one company changes everything. So what drives adoption across an industry, even across a segment of an industry? What makes the companies that care act in a similar way that genuinely redresses the the problem of inequality? Because it has to be a, a systemic change. What's going to drive that? How do you move 
a large number of businesses with conflicting and competing interests because you need to. And so the answer that is the most obvious one is you make it, you make it advantageous to do so, which then means you turn it into marketing and in which there's, oh, there's a lot of terrifying problems that you come up against there as well. But that's how I, to answer the question, that's sort of how I think about it. So given with the idea of inequality, uh, you spoke about power. Um, and I've, one of the questions I wanted to talk about was that internal power dynamics shape the lives of workers across the world uh, in the coffee trade. This is definitely the same. How do you feel the relationship between baristas and other protagonists in the coffee trade has changed over time, synchronous with the rise of specialty coffee and specialty cafes? That's a good question. I think, um, you know, I don't know if this is controversial, but I think we're the other side of a peak in the sort of power moving to baristas for a while in an interesting kind of way. I think uh, so early on in the boom, um, there were relatively few passionate sort of passionate business owners. And so the opportunities to work in a good shop were pretty limited. And so, you know, we certainly saw, you know, a, a lot of baristas come in at that stage, be passionate, and then uh, move into sort of secondary opportunities as the market grew where um, less passionate and knowledgeable people were starting coffee businesses. And trying to outsource the coffee knowledge to the baristas, so to speak. And I think from probably 2010, 2011, through to probably 2017, 18, um, no, pretty, up until the pandemic, really, there, there was increasing power in the hands of the baristas, right? The, uh, there was very high demand for trained, passionate people. Um, you know, historically, barista hourly wages had been well below the London living wage in London, for example, and they sort of move past and through that. So, you know, in the last few years, because it's a, it's a kind of classic su supply demand piece, but you also had a great deal of uh, businesses being opened by people who did not have a fundamental understanding of coffee itself. They maybe liked the idea of cafes, saw a booming industry, wanted in. Um, and so that meant you know, the, the, the equipment that a cafe bought was more often determined by the baristas working there than by the owner themselves, right? Like the, the decisions to buy from different roasters was very much driven by baristas more than it was by cafe owners. And I think for certain baristas in the industry, there was, there was more power for a while, more influence, for want of a better word these days. Then I think you've obviously had this moment where, you know, uh, cafes have closed, there are no jobs, for you know baristas really out there especially those sort of in a uh, early stage in their career and that's inevitably moved the power balance around right like i don't really know how that's going to show itself in the next six to 12 months but there's no question that you, you know like i i think we'll see the average wage go down a little bit you know because there'll be enough demand that certain business owners will feel like i don't need to pay over the odds to hire somebody anymore and that's you know not the best news but i you know you know i think that's sort of the sort of the rise in power definitely happened but that that's definitely changed in the last year 18 months for sure uh, so i'm going to switch now on to uh, some regional questions mm. so how has your experience varied across the different uh, coffee producing nations i think uh, you know i i am not a green buyer i should say this first and foremost I'm not a green buyer. I've never been a green coffee buyer. I've never had to 
meaningfully go and build relationships or buy coffees in these places. And so if I'm harsh about my time spent in origins, it's often as part, you know, visiting guest speaker, half coffee tourist, which I don't particularly like as an idea, but it is, you know, part of that. So I don't think many of my experiences, you know, in producing countries are, uh, um, they're quite, they're kind of weird, unique relationship moments, right? Like as experiences, I don't get to have for, for better or worse. I don't get to have a particularly normal industry experience in those places. Often most of my travel happened after I'd won the world birthday championship, which creates its own dynamic around what people want from me, where they want me to go, where they will help me go or what they will help me see. And then I suppose if I went now, it would be even weirder and more extreme in that regard. So I'm I'm hesitant to speak too much about my experiences there because they're so atypical. Do you know what I mean? Like um, that that I I don't feel like I got to spend the time really with people in, in a in a sort of unguarded honest transparent manner for want of a better word right like it's it's it they end up being much more performance based again it's not a great word but it you know it is sort of what it is when you are moving around to give talks or do these kind of things or do super weird breakfast tv in costa rica or whatever it is you know um never again um but you know you you, you, you learn by doing um so yeah i find that a really hard question to answer because because of the nature of my visits and my time there, especially with most of it being post 2008. That's a fantastic insight. So thanks for telling us and sharing that with us. Um, so although you, you know, you've got this experience when in the country, you have successfully become very popular globally uh, in all the kind of coffee producing regions. I know specifically in Mexico, uh, your name is very popular amongst the coffee industry. Um, so I was wondering what are the major benefits of connecting yourself in this kind of uh, becoming globally known uh, and what have the challenges been when uh, dealing with that global recognition uh, you know you know i think um none of the challenges have been worth complaining about if that makes sense like uh, you know i i, I think what I, what i think about a lot is that i'm very fortunate in my connectivity and it allows me to learn more about what's going on in different places because I'm I'm a believer that um, the industry requires all forms of diversity of approach, people, everything, right? And it's not particularly good at that. It's very good at, at doing the one thing within its market that seems to be successful and following in on that again and again and again. And that one thing is market dependent. You know, what you see in Jakarta as being the one thing that everyone wants to do is different to what you see in Seoul or what you see in London or anywhere else. But within a market, you most definitely see this sort of um, homogeneity of idea, of presentation, of offering to the consumer. Um, so what I am always interested in doing is trying to take what's interesting and successful and working in one market to another, right? That's my sort of opportunity to be a good, helpful cross-pollinator. You know, what I'm, I'm not good at a lot of things. I'm reasonably good at sort of, um, I'm not using the word trends, but sort of synthesizing down what's going on somewhere 
to sort of pass it along to somewhere else. You know, like I'm trying to understand, you know, why specialty hasn't really flourished in Jakarta, but this kind of tier below of like half specialty, better green coffee, decent roasting into relatively cheap, milky sweet drinks. And if that's, you know, a better grade of coffee, if that's wildly successful, if that's really booming there, is that interesting? Is that worth paying attention to in London? You know, it's a different market, it's a different audience, but I'd be, I think, deeply ignorant and foolish to ignore success in a different market where coffee flavor has won people over, you know? And so I think I'm trying to buck the trend where, and you see this in a lot of producing countries where those who are loudest on the internet often win, right? So you, you, you see a lot of US style coffee culture in some producing countries in sort of major cities there that's the kind of replication of the aesthetic the materials choices menu choices layouts bar designs equipment all of that kind of stuff feels very taken from somewhere else and that's sure take steal absolutely but not just from one place because you know i would say the us as a market is not super healthy or, or the kind of ideal that we should be holding up to other you know, uh, cultures looking to grow a specialty side to what they do. So that's, yeah, to answer the question all the way back, that's how I try and think about connectivity, which is, it's, can I be a conduit for other ideas? Um, that's always been interesting to me when I've traveled historically to move from one city to another and to sit down with people and just be like, tell me what's happening here, you know, and getting three or four different versions of that same answer, because inevitably, there's going to be, you know, personal bias in each one, but you'll see a picture forming of what's going on in Tokyo right now, what's going on in Melbourne right now, where are things moving, what's difference, what's changing. I want to know that, but I also want to share that. Excellent. Uh, thanks for answering my um, questions. That's uh, that's it for me. So I'm going to hand over to Phil, who's going to talk to you about quality digital channels of knowledge as well as consumerism. So thanks very much. Well, thank you. Yeah, so moving on to discuss an overarching theme of this conversation, um, which has been coffee quality. So specialty coffee companies often distinguish themselves by emphasizing this quality in their product. And uh, how do you define specialty coffee? I've used a lazy definition for a long time, uh, which sort of makes people mad, which is any mm. coffee that is sold as a premium above market rates based on its taste. That's good. It does therefore bring into it coffees that you might not want to be specialty coffee. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's a flawed definition. I don't think technically Kopi Luwak is specialty coffee. I think it's the antithesis of its ideals, but at the same time, it's a product that's sold at a premium price based on its taste, but also its story, which is more, yeah. I suppose, where the, the convoluted bit comes in. But yeah. it's a story of traceability. It's a story of provenance. Is that not what specialty coffee is? I don't know. It's not. Yeah, yeah. That's why all definitions are pretty flawed. Totally, yeah, there are a ton out there. Um, but a slightly more nuanced question, I guess, would be how has specialty coffee marked a shift in how we understand quality in coffee? Or has it? No, I think it I think it's definitely lifted this the ceiling of expectation that I sort of mentioned before. I think mm -hmm. that um the idea that coffee can be good, whatever your version of good is, you know, I think mm -hmm. it, it has grown and developed because of the exposure of this be it you know good might simply be less bitter to some people good might be complex high acidity you know nuanced and and you know uh, challenging regardless i think whatever your expectations of coffee were i think they're now broader and higher and that's where 
this sort of relatively small business of specialty always managed to punch above its weight. Thank you. And a more sort of historical question about quality and changes in quality. So historically, we've attributed changes in systems of coffee production to changes in how consumers want to drink their coffee. So for instance, a, a broader historical trend that I'll use in this example is that farmers applied technological innovation to systems of coffee processing in the 20th century. So after that, consumers invariably favored the sort of tech intensive wet processed coffee over the dry. Though now we've sort of come full circle and consumers are more interested in trying coffee processed by the dry method and um, other all sorts of methods and quality is equally associated with these novel processing methods such as carbonic maceration and whatever else. So I guess the question is, how have you experienced the changing relationship between the rise of specialty coffee and these distinctive processing methods and different changes in, on farms? You know, I think if you go right the way back to the beginning of the sort of wet process method, it was a happy mm -hmm. accident that there might be a consumer preference for it. You know, ultimately the rise in that technique, the reason that it, it remained so common is that it reduced the incidence of defect in a producer's coffee and therefore increased their average price by, you know, lifting the floor of that quality. And uh, I think there's been, a, you know, I, I think we've kind of gone through an interesting transition with this stuff, which is, I think, because from the early days of specialty, um, flavor was correlated to things like processing. I think the story that was presented was that processing decisions were made around flavor, which until very recently was not true. Variety choice was not about flavor. Processing choice was not about flavor. It was simply and sensibly about a financial return on investment, right? As a producer, it will cost you more money to wet process your coffee. It will cost more resources, but the chances of it being a defective lot that is unable to be sold at a certain price point decrease pretty dramatically. If you can't do that, if you are you know dry processing your coffee, it is a much bigger gamble with the you know crop that you have spent a year growing and harvesting and all that kind of stuff. It, it's just an enormous gamble that most producers do not want to take, right? And that's why you know naturals had remained such a small segment of the industry. And you know from a consumer perspective, I think consumers specifically with natural processed coffees that um, exhibit like a strong ferment quality in their tasting profile. That That is incredibly divisive within consumers today, right? Uh, as a good or bad experience. I would say from my experiences doing things like the world's largest coffee tasting from dealing with people, 30 to 40% of people find fermented flavors in coffee to be wildly and extremely unpleasant. And mm. they're just straight, no. That is that is off. That is rotten. That is wrong. That tastes like manure or other negative flavors to them. And I see it and I get it and I understand it. At the same time, those coffees historically, and you know, if you look even back to sort of two thousand two, three, four, a lot of the transformative coffees for coffee professionals at that time had been those kind of very blueberry kind of naturals. Um, you know, from Ethiopia, from regions like Harar that we don't really see talked about the same way in specialty, but you know, like those kind of um, very traditional dry process coffees from that region were hugely popular for being so characterful, funky, interesting, you know, um, they would 
fail un under the kind of common stricter standards of grading today. You know, they'd be considered as defective, but they were also highly delightful to a lot of people. And the first time they'd experienced coffee that didn't taste like coffee. I think the movement now where, you know, what you're seeing in processing methods right now and the diversity of that happening is, is very, very roaster driven because you have a highly, highly, highly competitive market for coffee roasters right now. And people are looking for USP, are looking for an edge, for looking for an unusual product. And so are willing to risk more and back more experiments. Where the market wants more weird things, a market will produce more weird things, right? But, but the rise in uh, unusual processing methods, I think has driven by roasters looking for diversity and new offerings and, and competitive advantage, all the way back to that idea, rather than consumers saying, this is wild, this is amazing, give me more, give me more, give me more, give me more. Yeah, roasters are excited, therefore it bleeds down to cafe owners, roasters are excited, and that gets communicated into the consumer in, in that particular manner. But I do not believe that consumer preference is driving that nearly as much as roaster uh, preference or, or need is driving those kind of rapid evolutions and experiments within the processing sector. That's a fantastic and very thorough take. I'll have to think about that because that shifted a lot of ideas in my head. So thank you. <laughs> Pleasure. Um, now I'll move on to some questions on digital channels for coffee knowledge and sort of how sure. these developed over the past while. So with the rise of specialty coffee, we have also seen the formation of a significant online community, as you know, interested in sharing knowledge in coffee brewing and roasting and whatever else on coffee. So in many ways, you are a fantastic example of the power in this community. And since beginning a coffee blog in the early 2000s, you've now a huge following on YouTube. And although this phenomenon isn't also an example of power in the new digital age, it is striking that coffee knowledge is something that there is a significant demand for beyond the community of strictly coffee professionals. And um, why do you think that with specialty coffee, there has been a significant shift to this digital dissemination of knowledge? I mean, so there's definitely a pre and post pandemic change here. And that's within, you know, um, that's for a lot of people on a platform like YouTube. I think a lot of, you know, people who do things relevant to stuff you do at home, be it productivity and emails through to coffee saw a significant shift. I think I, I come and go on what people want. Um, I think people's demand for education is, is there but it came with conditions that we hadn't really considered previously because the information has historically been available and there have been communities for a long time that are very information driven communities. If you think about kind of coffee forums or those kind of environments where you generally have people coming and just wanting information or to share information, right? Like that they're very information driven, but they are relatively small compared to the wider community of people who drink coffee and might have an interest in it. And the, you know, the, the question I wrestle with in doing what I do now, which is different to what I did before, most definitely, mm -hmm. is, is um, how can I combine education and entertainment so that you come for the educa uh, you come for the entertainment and I, I, along the way you gain insight and understanding as a kind of byproduct of, of investing your time into me and we build trust with each other and, and that kind of a thing. But if I, if I just say, I'm here to educate you, very few people day to day are looking to be educated. Mm -hmm. Our brains are full, right? Our lives are full. And the idea that I'm going to sit down and learn 
is rare. Like it's a, usually a point of need, right? If you look at how people use YouTube as an example to specifically learn, it's a, I've got toothpaste on my carpet. How do I get it out? I'll go to YouTube and someone will, will tell me that. And I will, I will learn. And that's education. That's pure education. I require information. It is delivered and I move on with my day. And that video I'm unlikely to watch in any other circumstance than I have an immediate need for that knowledge. And if you make those videos, I suspect, you know, you have a limited reach long-term, right? Uh, they're very useful. And the, the, the joy of YouTube, the positivity of it is that it's there for almost every question you could imagine, which is barely worth thinking about. But, you know, if you want to build a picture frame, fine, it's there. If you want to learn how to water a certain kind of plant, absolutely there for you. If you want to learn how to strip down one particular part of one particular car built in one particular year, that's YouTube, that's there. Uh, you know, what I think is, is different is if I'm looking to educate, that can't be what I lead with, because that's not a need that people currently have. Mm. And, and that doesn't build the same kind of relationship long term, that I'm interested in, because I'm interested in a relationship that long term changes behavior, right? Like I, my nefarious plan is that uh, through YouTube, I will get people to value coffee more, and ultimately have a higher ceiling on what they'll pay for it, that we can leverage through the supply chain, right, to, to sort of lift at least one pressure, we need consumers to spend more money, how do we do that, they need to see the value in spending more money, how do we do that, we make coffee more enjoyable to them. And that's the key, right? It's it 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 it's not going to be more caffeinating. It might be fractionally more delicious, but what about enjoyable? That's a more that's a more broad, more interesting term and idea to me. And that's yeah. what I'm trying to do. And that's why I think YouTube is such an interesting platform for that. And that's one of the big reasons that I've invested so much of my time in the last two years into it. And and but I've unquestionably seen a return on that. You know, be it the growth in the community, the power of said community. You know what I mean? Like, um, and you, you know, communities are very powerful at a certain size. If you can direct their energies into places, you can do a lot, be it with money or with other things like that. So I don't know if I answered the question. Um, yeah. I answered a question, but um, yes, I think that's what we haven't seen is more knowledge available because that there have been brewing videos on YouTube for a decade. That information has always been available. What's changing is the way that people are engaging with the information and what they're actually coming to people who create, I'm not gonna say content, I'm not gonna say content, videos around coffee um, for, right? Like why, why are they coming? Why are they listening? Why are they staying? Why are they coming back again? Interesting. I like that idea of the, the enjoyment sort of driving the need to be educated or the want, the desire to be educated on coffee. And, and I guess to take it back even further, sort of um, before YouTube was a thing and before video dissemination was a thing, do you think there was maybe, would it be harsh to say there was a lack of enjoyment in learning about coffee or was it more of like a, in just like a need? No, I think, look, you know, we have a, we've had a difficult relationship with our consumers because we arrived as an industry. This is a very simplified version. We arrived and we said, hey, we've got this amazing, great product. It's better than anything you're drinking. And loads of people went, I don't get it. It's weird. I can't pronounce half the names on the menu. It's expensive. It tastes sour. I don't get it. And we were like, mm, you just don't understand. You need education, right? Like you, uh, uh, and that, that attitude became the kind of mimetic 
caricature of coffee, right? Like the snobby person who looked down at you, who judged you, who made you feel bad. It was pretentious. It was all the Empress New Clothes. That came from that thing of like, oh no, what the consumer is missing is education, which I think was a colossal mistake that I think we make still all the time. Um, I, I uh, you know, by, by making education a requirement, we create a barrier to entry, right? That, and we say, you can't, you can't enjoy this until you understand it. How, you know what I mean? Like, how, you know, and yeah. I, I think that exists outside of coffee too, right? Like absolutely exists outside of coffee. And I often um, reference like spending time in like a single cask whiskey place, which we supply with coffee. And I, I remember, I don't know what question, I don't really, look, I like whiskey. I think whiskey is delicious. I think it can be extremely enjoyable. I know nothing about it. And I don't particularly want to know anything about it really like i'm curious about most things i eat and drink but i don't need to have you know a catalog of of like which which are the space side distilleries i don't care i really don't care and the idea that i have to care to enjoy whiskey seems completely absurd to me offensively so to be honest right and i remember being in one of these whiskey bars and asking a question so stupid that the guy stood next to me laughed at me like it was a full snort of like that is the dumbest question and he is full hardcore whiskey whiskey person and the person, the other side of the bar was fantastic, right? One of the great customer experiences of my life, not just because he answered my question beautifully, but then because he poured me something from 1965 on the house to wind up the guy next to me, uh, right? Solely for that reason, just to watch his expression on his face is this, you know, heathen, this, this, you know, know nothing who couldn't possibly appreciate this whiskey with all the context and history and all that kind of stuff was set drinking on the house for free, right? That, that, that was, you know, a beautiful piece of service in my eyes. Anyway, taking it all back to coffee. If we do the same thing all the time, right? Like we, we say, you need to be able to pronounce a word of a, 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 a group or a mill in Kenya that is very hard to pronounce to order this coffee. Right, that's what we say. Now we say it with the best intentions because we want to tell you that this came from Kiawa Maruru. We think that's important to tell you that. But then we say, but now you need to know how to say that, and you need to be, you need to understand what that even is. Is it a farm? Don't be ridiculous. That's not a farm. That's not how that works. Uh, you know what I mean? Like it, 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 we just put all these barriers up to what is potentially a life-changing, fascinating cup of coffee for somebody. Right? Like it's going to taste like Ribena. It's juicy. It's amazing. But we stand in the way of that all too often with the best intentions. That's the kind of key part for me with the best intentions. And so, you know, there is a, um, a lack of seriousness in what I do on YouTube, right? Which is really important because, because I need you to be comfortable and entertained and amused because at that point I can drop in a bunch of knowledge on the side. And you're like, I did not know that. And, but I'm in a place to receive that information. And, you know, if I can give you context with that information, make it usable to you, useful to you, that's really valuable. And, uh, you know, but I need you to be in a place where you're receptive to new ideas and, and it's not school, right? You're not mm -hmm. in a classroom environment, you know, that's learning for people. And a lot of people have a very negative experience of learning in their lives. So by the time we say you must be educated, you have to learn. No, thank you not not really i'm i've i've done with that like i left school i finished uni i've moved on with my life i don't do exams anymore i don't learn that way i don't want that sorry i'm rambling at you but um yes uh yeah that's that's how i feel about that no that's that's fantastic that's a, a wonderful insight and i guess to follow up how 
you know, you have your own YouTube videos as an example of how you've approached this, but how well a job has the industry done, I guess, more broadly in making information accessible over the years and, and coming from this sort of exclusive place where we're saying you can't have this unless you qualify your knowledge on this subject by XYZ. How do you think we've done a, a good job in making information accessible or how could we change that? I think the information has been broadly available, not all of it. I think there's still a lot that's sort of hidden away or considered proprietary or, or you know, not widely disseminated. Um, but, um, you, you know, I, again, I struggle with a lot of language that we use. Uh, you know, we, 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 you see a lot of this still, which is, you know, we're trying to make this information approachable, um, which again, people read the code in that people see what you're saying when you say we're just mm -hmm. trying to make this coffee more approachable you're like oh i'm too stupid for this you need to dumb it down mm -hmm. a little bit for me is that what we're doing um like i like uh, you know as a uh, you know you brought the word exclusive up i'm extremely interested in inclusive as a word i like that idea a lot more than approachable or anything else because it's just about you know that's the that for me is the right word which we don't really use enough and i think exclusivity is highly desirable historically around premiumized products, right? This is not for everyone. This is the special thing. This is the luxury thing. This is exclusive. And that's what premium price products have been. So there's a real tension in trying to make a premium price product thing inclusive when by its very nature, the price required to acquire it is exclusive. So you'd argue there's a tension that you may never overcome there. Um, bouncing a little bit, I apologize. Um, so, Yes, the information has been uh, there and available, but I still feel it's a bit like a library where, yeah, all the books are there on the shelf and they're completely free to take out. But if you do not understand the duodecimal system, I wish you the best of luck finding what you need. And that's still, I think, what that is. Like information is there and it's free, but but the connection to need states is not there, really, broadly. Yeah, the library metaphor is great. Thank you. Um, so we'll move away from more of focus on the online coffee community and that sort of aspect or that area of knowledge dissemination to one on more specifically consumerism. So since you began working in coffee from selling gages and selfridges to embarking on your own coffee enterprise at Square Mile, what changes more broadly have you noticed in the consumer culture of specialty coffee? It's a good question. I think I think, it, you know, we used the word right at the start, I think, which is it's it's become normalized, right? Like, I mm. think early on, those that were actively spending on coffee were spending substantially and were accurately described as hobbyists, right? Like, um, coffee was a focused part of their life. It was something they invested in. They invested in equipment, they invested time, being on forums, they learned about these things, they got off the you know, the tube a stop early to get to the right cafe on their way to work or whatever else. Like it was a defining characteristic of who they were. What's changed is that having nice coffee as part of your life is a much more normal thing for a much wider group of people. It, it, you know, it, it, you know, yes, the hardcore end of stuff is still the uh, domain of the hobbyists, but I think you know, more people would just say, no, I'd like a nice coffee. Like, I'd like, you know what I mean? Like I just, and I'm willing to pay for that out of home. What was shocking about the pandemic, I think for the specialty coffee industry is that, you know, typically people who bought coffee directly from roasters online pre-pandemic 
probably fell closer to hobbyists than non, right? If they were willing to, to make a single internet purchase of a single product for just coffee, right? This thing that you can go and buy on the supermarket shelf with all your shopping, can, or it can come with like a cardo or whatever. They were willing to say, no, I will go out and I will buy just one bag of coffee from one company, which is an interesting defining sort of characteristic. If you think about the things that you buy, very few things that you would buy that you eat and drink, you buy individually, right? Like wine is a good example, or, or booze often, where you might go and buy a bottle of wine, and that's generally a, a thoughtful, specific transaction against a specific you know need. But if you think about breakfast cereal, I'm not sure how many people are buying a single box of breakfast cereal online from a breakfast cereal company. I would say very few. Um, and so, you know, going into the pandemic, the fear was, okay, all of these people that have been drinking a coffee out of home while they have a meeting on the way to work, what what will they do? Will they just go back to drinking commercial coffee or whatever else? And the answer was no, they were willing to go online and make a transaction, in part because they were stuck at home with not a lot else to do and internet shopping was a great way to pass the time. And for those people who were seeing a financial benefit to the pandemic, which is a, a, a section and a substantial, but obviously not majority of the, the population, but a good number of people stopped paying for lunch out, paying for dinners, paying for drinks, paying for commuting, you know, like that they 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 have a lot more money in the bank than they would have done. They're at home on full salary doing their job, right? They have had a financially healthy pandemic, and so online shopping for them has been a great boredom suppressor. You know, I think that's unquestionably true. So yeah, we you know what was fascinating was this sudden lurch of like hundreds of thousands of people who historically had not bought coffee online before started buying coffee online because it wasn't just Square Mile that saw a massive boost in sales. It was every single coffee roasting company, right? And these people who were not historically buying coffee that way suddenly started. And that's been the biggest, most interesting change to consumer behavior in decades for me. And I don't necessarily think we understand the impact or long-term ramifications of it, but it is fascinating. Mm, interesting. We talked to actually Tim, this is relevant. We talked to Tim a few weeks ago, Tim Wendell, mm -hmm. about uh, sort of this consumerism with COVID and how it's changing. And he's he's noted that in Scandinavia, there are more people who are interested in brewing. So it was more of a natural process to, to switch to sort of brewing at home or brewing in the office because maybe the knowledge was there. I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I think that was close to the answer. And do you think in the UK, we've seen more of a rise in in people wanting to learn about homebrewing because they feel like they have to because they can't get they couldn't get their coffee at a cafe yeah unquestionably i think a lot of people have been driven online to be like okay i sort of have gotten used to coffee not being terrible and i want that at home what do i do what do i do and that certainly was a benefit to me as a you know online producer of video uh you know where i my audience grew because suddenly lots of people were like uh what grinder do i buy i they, these companies will only sell me beans i'm used to buying ground coffee but uh, they sell the beans. So I now need a grinder. And, you know, I don't think it's a surprise that Baratza as a company had an exit in the year of a pandemic where they could not keep enough grinders in stock. Uh, and, and, you know, mm -hmm. a company like Breville was like, oh, we need to build more grinders. Let's just buy a grinder company because grinder sales are through the roof globally. So, yeah, unquestionably, I think that there's been a knee jerk reaction and a sudden need. And I think I was fortunate to have, you know, not to make this about me, but I, I am sorry. You know, I, I think I was positioned in a place where I was sort of more um, 
approachable to those people. I hate that word. More interesting to those people. More, more, you know, than uh, than a traditional straight coffee hardcore knowledge channel would be, where like this is this brewing method and this is this this is, you know, watching someone have fun, have a terrible time, everything in between. I think was suddenly like, oh, this maybe okay, coffee's good. There's maybe more here, and that's that's that kind of bit where you're like, I'm curious to learn more, and then we've got them. Like that's it. Like once it gets you, you know, then we we got you. You know, that's great. Anyway, um, so yeah, I think I think unquestionably the UK and a lot of the US too. A lot of places have had a strong knee jerk desire for information from from the pandemic. Interesting. No, great answer. Thank you. So I guess on following up on the theme of consumerism, uh, the next question would be how has your relationship with importers changed over the time over this time, specifically the bracket sort of we've had specialty coffee set in over the past maybe 10 to 15 years? I think, you know, that's a difficult question. I, I, I can speak to that as a kind of business owner, but again, mm -hmm. not as a green buyer. So I've yeah. never really had a primary point of contact with, with importers specifically. Um, and so, you know, like, you know, as Square Mile has grown, our need for importers has changed. Our relationship has changed out of need, you know, early days, we were in very great need of importers because we couldn't buy quantities that, that enabled any other form of purchase. Like we were buying pallet by pallet that you have to have a relationship with an importer to do that. And, you know, if you want to get what you want ahead of other people, you need a good relationship. So the, you know, that power dynamic was there, but I think as roasteries grow, and they begin to look at trying to, you know, fill a container for a particular origin, then the relationship with the importer changes. Um, because for an importer to finance that the, the transit of coffee is not particularly lucrative compared to, you know, selling spot, you know, in terms of margins and that kind of stuff. So that rarely was there a business for importers to do a lot of logistics for coffees that they themselves were not buying, right. And so that's where you see this kind of graduation out of regular purchasing from importers with most roasters of a certain size who begin to work then with exporters more specifically um to to you know build a uh, build up a, a box or a half box of coffee or that kind of stuff or work with each other to to do that sort of stuff so you know that's the the primary shift i think has been you know roasters like square mile still buy from importers but that would maybe make up five percent of annual purchasing whereas when we started it was a hundred percent of annual purchasing you know, because we were roasting such little coffee that that was just what it was. So that, yeah, I think that's the biggest change. I, you know, I think the the industry has grown and there's been so many new businesses coming and coming that, that importers have always had a, a customer base, mm, you know, um, and as certain roasters have graduated out, yeah, there'll be long-term relationships where they still might buy a hundred bags of something because one contract has fallen through or something hasn't met needs or that kind of stuff. And it's still a big purchase, but they're not buying, uh, a substantial quantity of, of, of coffee from importers anymore. Interesting. And to move, I guess, further along the supply chain and on that theme of asking in terms of uh, for the consumer, how has your experience of roasting coffee changed in the same uh, time bracket? Do you know, I remember a period of time, probably six or seven years ago now, maybe more, Time is very squishy. When I was looking at our espresso sitting in the cooling tray and thinking, this is so light. How, you know, but it had been a gradual process. And I wondered, have our consumers, like have the people who drink and serve our coffee, because this change has perhaps been incremental, 
have they almost even noticed? You know what I mean? Because the way that the human sense of taste works, we work on change. If our change is extremely incremental, we don't really notice it. And, you know, I think you see a lot of that in roasters as they drift around without really realizing it. Um, and, you know, you build your QC around not having that happen. But I think our style had sort of shifted and our aspirations. And I wondered, do people want this? I mean, we're selling lots of it, but, but you know, like, is this, where's the demand here? Is it, uh, is it a, a sort of a, not quite a despotic kind of author authoritarian kind of, this is the coffee you will drink, but you know, you want to be proud of your product and try and find a home for it. Um, instead of, you know, chasing the consumer, you know, it's, it's modern politics, right? Politics to me historically was have an idea, convince people of your idea, enough people are, agree and you can enact said idea. Like that's that now it's like, what do you want me to say? What do you want me to say to give me the keys to 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 this place with power so I can do what I want to do once, you know, that, and that's sort of, to me, modern politicking, which is kind of weird and gross. Anyway, um, so yeah, I, I think that the consumer has been, to some extent, taken for a ride by the experimentation of specialty as it found its feet. And I think there was something consistently enjoyable about it that kept them on board. But I think, um, yeah, I think it's really been a process of really truly understanding what it is that we're trying to do in roasting that helps you be more consistent in doing it right and if you're just roasting for peak flavor or roasting for whatever else i'm not sure that's enough i think there needs to be a combination of philosophical and technical guidance around what you're trying to achieve with roasting otherwise you'll drift um, and i think we've drifted a lot less since since realizing where drift comes from Fascinating. I think that idea of taking the consumer on a ride is brilliant. And obviously, since more roasters have popped up over the past few years, there's lots of different rides to go on. And I think that that's definitely helped. So, oh, yeah. Thank you. I think that's all of my questions. So thank you very much for answering. So thanks for joining us, James, and sharing with us your reflections, especially coffee. It's been fascinating to hear about your experience of this history. We appreciate your support for the Scottish Centre for Global History's aims to increase public awareness of global history in order to contribute to a more inclusive and considerate society. And while I'm here, I'd just like to make a, a quick announcement, which is uh, for anyone listening to this podcast who researches coffee in the past or in the present, we're working with Sabine Parrish at Oxford University to create a coffee research collective. We hope to use this as a way to share resources, to give feedback on research papers, and to provide intellectual and emotional support. So whether you're a postgraduate student or even up to a senior professor, if you're interested in joining this group, please get in contact with the Scottish Centre for Global History via email or Twitter, and I'll add you to our, our contact list. Uh, so yeah, again, finally, James, thanks very much for taking part in this. A pleasure. I really enjoyed our conversations today. So uh, thank you for having me.